Hello, and welcome back to this episode of the Blue Lineage Podcast. On today's episode, we continue to delve deeper into hip-hop and how that kind of developed and took shape from, you know, what started off as a, a movement, cultural movement, and shifted into the industry, became, you know, much more formalized. And, you know, as we've continued to be doing these past uh, episode or two, kind of closing out on this uh, soul funk movement uh, that was happening and to kind of start off with that kind of wrap that up our first artist uh, today is Curtis Mayfield and Curtis Mayfield is um, he's well known as an R&B soul and funk musician uh, with a as a distinct uh, tenor voice um, but even more so, maybe he's known as a, c- a composer, and some of the production uh, work he did, uh, which you know, you know, working uh, behind the boards uh, or behind the camera, and really creating uh, work for not only himself but for others, uh, co-writing, you know, composing hits for other people, and um, he's originally from Chicago. He got his uh, start singing in church co- choirs uh, in 1957. He was still a, a teenager. He joined a doo-wop group called The Roosters. He was a guitarist and also did vocals. And that The Roosters was later known as Impressions. Uh, that group was led by his friend and uh, longtime collaborator, Jerry Butler. And in 1960, he created a published company a publishing company for his music uh, called Cord Curtum. And the impressions, they had a, a pretty solid success during that time, uh, during the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, the band kind of shifted things up uh, over, over that time as their careers evolved. And they did have a, a top charting song. It was known as It's All Right during that time period. It came out in 1963. And, you know, while this was going on, you know, Curtis Mayfield was already starting his composition, uh, songwriting success, uh, writing successful songs for other Chicago-based uh, artists like Major Lance, Gene Chandler, Billy Butler, and Walter Jackson. And as the mid-60s approached, uh, the impressions began to write more socially conscious lyrics. Um, at that during that period, he wrote "People Get Ready," uh, "We're a Winner," and you know some of these songs like "We're a Winner" received a reduced airplay just because of the nature of the song and the social climate. We've kind of talked about this on a number of occasions during that time period, the 1960s into the 1970s, where there was this soul and then also this funk. A movement that coincided with a lot of the social uh, social movements that were going on at the time. Um, in some cases, it was intentionally, you know, not really. It was more made for the black community and therefore stayed on those R and B charts, uh, which we've talked about, you know, a number of times. Um, you know, was the, was kind of coded for the black market, and then other times, you know, the artists were just putting out what they could, uh, maybe trying to make a pop. Uh, song, you know, which is going to sell the most. 
Um, but due to the social nature of the song, you know, it was it didn't get as much airplay and whatnot. And even on you know an R R and B station or some of these other stations, they might get a limited airplay just because, of course, you know, just with just with anything else, you know, when it comes to commercial or uh, business, you know, you don't want to interfere with ad money. And of course, with the radio, you know, uh, you know, you can start to interfere with your ad money if you get too political or unpopular, and so on and so forth. Um, and choice of colors is another example. Uh, in 1968, he he founded uh, Curtom Records, and you know we already talked about some of his songwriting, but with this um, with this venture, he was able to compose and produce film soundtrack albums, uh, including Claudine, which featured Gladys Knight and the Pips, and also um, featured uh, or helped produce Aretha's Franklin, uh, Aretha, Aretha Franklin's album Sparkle. Uh, and then in 1970, Curtis Mayfield left the Impressions, and he released his debut solo album, Curtis, that same year. And in 1972, he composed the score for Superfly, which is probably what he, you know, is probably the most well-known for and most successful for. Um, so he, yeah, he composed the score for that. And there's a commercial song, with commercial success with some of the songs from that album, including Freddy's Dead, which was based on the character uh, Fat Freddy. I, there's sometimes people think that because of the timing and Curtis Mayfield is also from Chicago that that song is related to Fred Hampton. But if you listen to the song, I think it's pretty apparent that it's about the a character named Fat Freddy. And Superfly was, of course, I think probably the most well known hit in the title track of the of the uh, album and song. I mean movie. And there's a lot of, you know, I think Curtis Mayfield is a good example of somebody who's kind of associated with that funk era, you know, that, vi that funk vibe and culture. But he's a, he clearly is a, fits into that soul category and kind of goes along, along with that movement of you know, the soul movement, uh, you know, soul train. Um, just, you know, this sort of genre that was kind of countering the pop genre where we saw elements of a lot of these mu types of music in there you know Curtis Mayfield had a lot of funk infused into these songs but when you listen to his, his music in general you definitely of course it goes with his background coming from the impressions you know his music dips into that you know funk and some of this other new age stuff that was coming out you know some of it definitely has a psychedelic um, um, a psychedelic sound at some time at times but overarching I think it definitely still fits into that soul R&B uh, genre and you know despite the, the success despite the success of Superfly um, during the 1970s he continued to work with other artists you know that was clearly something that he wanted to do and was passionate about um, and he continued to record into the 1980s and then in 1983, Impressions had a reunion, a reunion tour, and then uh, in 1990 he was injured during a concert 
it was a crazy freak accident where the stage scaffolding fell on him and it left him paralyzed from the neck down. And at this point, you know, his health really just declined, uh, you know, from that point on until 1999, uh, where he, when he passed away, you know, basically all of it kind of go back, going back to those injuries. So, um, you know, his biggest success was Superfly, but, you know, he was still, it, you know, his, his big contribution was in the production and composition side. So with his career ending the way it did, obviously, you know, there's, there could have been more successes, but Superfly is definitely what he's known for. It's a great work of, of art, um, the movie, you know, goes together really nice, the movie and soundtrack. Um, you know, that's what is listed on the timeline, the Superfly album. Uh, probably post some of the main tracks from that. But, um, you know, definitely interesting artist. Um, someone to look into uh, as far as all the different artists and different works that he kind of touched, you know, whether it's through composition or playing on it or singing on the track, uh, you know, great artist. And that's Curtis Mayfield. Um, next on the timeline, we go to Sylvia Robinson. And Sylvia Robinson is very uh, interesting individual on the timeline. I think someone who, uh, I, I think in the modern era, people don't necessarily uh, know of her as maybe they should. Um, but she had quite a long-spanning career. Uh, she was born in New York City as Sylvia Banterpool. Uh, she de developed an early interest and talent in R&B. And she got discovered by Columbia Records, a Columbia Records talent scout, in high school. And that was when she was uh, 14. And, you know, at that point, she worked with a, a number of labels, you know, during her come up. And uh, Mickey Baker, who was an R&B session guitarist, uh, him and uh, Sylvia formed a musical duo known as Mickey and Sylvia and they signed with RCA Records in 1956. And they had some some success, some commercial success uh, with Love is Strange, who was by Bo Diddley, who was a, another artist featured on our timeline. And also Baby You're So Fine, There Ought to Be a Law, and for backing vocals, uh, they, they uh, did backing vocals for Ike and Tina Turner's It's Gonna Work Out Fine. Um, in 1962, Baker left to play in France, and 1964, Sylvia married uh, sorry, Sylvia married Joseph Robinson, who became her career manager. Uh, he was originally in real estate, and he quit real estate and became Sylvia Robinson's now Sylvia Robinson's manager. Um, it's always interesting because her individual success, she. Um, course becomes famous after she's married and of course we know her as Sylvia Robinson and it's always interesting with female uh, female artists especially earlier you know now it's a little bit more of a conversation than a, uh, a tradition 
but you know when with women changing their name at marriage um, of course there was the duo where it was just the two first names I'm not sure what she went what Sylvia Robinson went as she was coming up before that if she just went by Sylvia Vanterpool or what but that's one of the things that sometimes I don't people don't necessarily always consider um, is that we see a lot of um, female artists take on individual you know first names and we see a lot of male artists take have a like two-part first and last stage names and you know that's one of the one of the reasons why it's just because of the kind of fictional drama that would have would take place if they got married and they still had the same stage name you know just kind of weird but you know it's I guess uh, kind of interesting maybe to some people anyways so Sylvia Robinson she's known as Sylvia Robinson now she took the name of Joseph Robinson and for a solo career they uh, founded uh, a record label called All Platinum which had a uh, which ha did have some success with some other artists like uh, Shirley and Company, Shame, Shame, Shame. Uh, but Sylvia Robinson was really uh, was uh, really the, the best uh, known artist. Her success was definitely the, the key success on the label. And she had a big song uh, that was kind of a pop disco sounding song called Pillow Talk in 1973. And as I did, and that song is known, I said disco-esque, because it's kind of known as a early form of uh, disco music that would come out later. You know, disco didn't really become big until the later 1970s. And so if you listen to it, it has a, a disco sound. Um, you know, we don't really get into disco on this timeline. And it's not like a, a, a genre I'm super, I know a whole lot about uh, as far as the history. But I just know that that is uh, something that she's known for. I don't know really what elements and you know where in um, formation disco kind of was at this point. I know disco is another one of those kind of labels that describes a kind of a broad set of uh, just sounds kind of compiled similar similar to kind of similar to soul. It's not necessarily a standalone genre. It's kind of a you know an amalgamation of some different genres during a time period. But um, in the late 1970s, the label's success faded, and ultimately they filed for bankruptcy in 1979, which is interesting because you know 1979 was a big year for hip hop, and Sylvia Robinson and her record company that she then founds, uh, she witnessed uh, hip hop, or you know, what was developing into such you know hip-hop rap at a Harlem world uh, at Harlem world nightclub and she decided that you know that's the direction she wanted to go with her music or her record company so she started a new label you know right after this other label apparently went bankrupt and she called it Sugar Hill Records and so you know along with her and her son Joey they wanted to recruit talent to sign and their first talent that they recruited um, was known as uh, the Sugar Hill Gang 
and the Sugar Hill Gang, of course, released The Rapper's Delight, which was the first uh, commercial hit and one of the songs credited in you know, really popularizing hip-hop culture and certainly a core influence for many uh, you know, up-and-coming rappers at the time. And so this is kind of, you know, where you get into uh, a little bit of Murky Waters. Uh, we'll get into um, some of the more of the foundations of hip-hop. But when I think I said last episode, you know, the first commercial or official hip-hop was in 1979. And this is what we referred to as this, this time period. Obviously, hip-hop has been in, in development for a long time. And as we just discussed here... Sylvia Robinson witnesses someone rapping over um, a track in a club. And so, you know, it's already there. Of, you know, this is in New York. This is, of course, where it all got started. And so, you know, this is, this is just a marker, 1979, where people can really officially mark it because as a commercial success, you know, it's clearly labeled, you know, this is rap, this is hip-hop, you know, it's all got the numbers you got the sales so that's the commercial success and the commercial existence of hip-hop and something that we mark on the timeline as being a first but as we'll discuss in a little bit you know it has a um, really a, a formation a kind of a formal formation in the early 1970s um, so in that same year soon after the rapper's delight is another artist we'll talk about but they signed the sequence and she also signed uh, a lot of other top acts, especially in early hip-hop, uh, including Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, who we'll talk about in a later episode. And that group was really the group that uh, expanded the label's creative possibilities and you know, just really tapped into where the hip-hop movement was going. And... You know, Sylvia Robinson, obviously, she had a lot of history um, being an artist herself, um, you know, doing some innovative work in the industry herself. And she wanted to support the rap groups in employing socially conscious lyrics into their music and taking, you know, elements from her own career and own experiences and putting that in it. So she also, besides, you know, innovating, kind of putting commercial commercializing i guess hip-hop to some degree she also uh you know was kind of injecting her experience into uh, some of the artist songs and leading that way as well um but once again you know as we kind of saw earlier they filed for bankruptcy in 1979 with their first label and uh, in the 1980s she had uh she had some legal matters again with major labels and industry competitors and a lot of it was just because um, just the way the format that hip-hop or rap comes out where a lot of you're getting into cutting tracks you're getting into a lot of editing this and that and you have to do a lot of clearance and you know it, it became an issue so some of that and you know of course other other issues that we'll talk about with some of her signed artists that come up as they go along. But due to that whole experience, she ended up retiring and selling the remainders of the label a little bit while later, you know, after the late 80s. And 
so Sylvia Robinson is just a, I think a very important, you know, one of the more important individuals on this timeline, I think, but probably one of the lesser known. I could say that about quite a few people, but just because of, you know, the span of her legacy, she, you know, dipped a little bit into disco and then really uh, built uh, one of the early foundations of the commercial, uh, you know, putting hip hop on the map in the in the music industry. Obviously, you know, the way it was trending in New York and the interest it was drawing and, you know, the whole pho- phenomenon and culture that was happening, you know, it would have blown up and become successful one way or another, but, you know, you know, Sylvia Robinson and that way took, you know, the initiative and put together, you know, what would be the first group and hit uh, in the hip hop field genre. So that is Sylvia Robinson. Um, so we'll continue to kind of go on this uh, hip hop theme. And so next we'll talk about Clive Campbell, also known as DJ Cool Herc. And so this is where we really get into, you know, the the groundwork, the foundation of what later became known as hip hop or rap. And you really see the kind of cultural components come together. And you know, Clive Campbell was originally from Jamaica. He grew up on reggae, Motown, and James Brown. And one of, he also experienced sound system. And one of the things that we talked about earlier um, in depth at different times as far as the contribu- contributions of black radio was, you know, number one, you know, just the radio, black radio DJ and kind of how they kind of shaped that aspect of what would, you know, be part of the hip hop culture, but also how a lot of their radio waves at night were able to cross over to Jamaica or the Caribbean in general, I should say, uh, because of the more open air um, at night. And so, you know, a lot of that was passed over um, and the music and the DJ and the style was passed over and exposed. individuals like you know Clive Campbell or somebody to some of these music genres that were occurring up in the states and it kind of added to what all already was going on in uh, Jamaica or you know the Caribbean music scenes and so the sound system aspect kind of adds something different because that is definitely uh, you know very much more a Jamaican uh, uh, tradition and so that's important because when he moved to Bronx, um, to the Bronx, when his family and him moved to the Bronx later, he kind of recreated these sound system experiences of Jamaica and New York, kind of saw that in the block parties. And so um, yeah, so when you think about the Jamaican sound system and uh, like I just said, you know, it kind of resembles the block parties that Clive Campbell would start in the Bronx and, you know, kind of build up with the whole, that whole DJ block party format. Um, you know, this, the sound systems definitely resemble that. And I think they definitely stand out as a unique example when you compare, you know, where you try to figure out where, you know, that sort of format came from, the sound system. Um, definitely is uh, resembles that you can 
it's not super it's not completely unique but when you think about the sound system so the sound system is essentially uh i don't know if you've ever seen like a picture or something a photo of just a ton of like speakers stacked on top of each other you know in an outdoor environment it's, it's a that's basically what sound system was it was a, a ton of speakers wired together um and connected to a generator and so in jamaica you know that they would have these sort of mobile remote uh parties or you know events i guess you could say just because of the limited access to um, music and of course when you have speakers and a generator a mic system a pa system you're able to pop up you know wherever and you know it was very important for spreading music and of course you know dance celebration in a area or times where you know that was being suppressed or limited and so um yeah you know it was it was for in jamaica is one of the very few ways to access cultural music and also to expand and you know include some of the other music that was coming over from the states for example um and so you know one of the things that you, you uh you know that that became one of the important themes for hip hop because not only was it you know not only was Clive Campbell bringing uh that over to the states but when you think about the limited portability of music during that time you know especially for large gatherings um you know outside of commercial establishments we've seen you know like the sound system we have seen examples where when we talked about black radio you know DJs of course performing in uh theaters you know playing in theaters and what not putting on those type of live parties and shows of course there's music rd um that was already be, being done with a live DJ but really the block party experience i don't think was fully captured and of course being outside of that commercial establishment establishment is a key component too because when you think about hip hop um you know was hip hop was really formulated and established outside of uh, the commercial environment and that's why you know it, of course it has kind of building on that soul and funk music where it's kind of not anti establishment but you know black the black community black culture right now is able to operate and you know fund and promote uh, music from of its own culture um so you know it's not just black uh music um uh, being played through the through whatever channels and being sold back to the black community now we have you know we're producing our own music you know through our own channels and then kind of picking and choosing and able to direct our artists to you know sort of a pop soul funk whatever type of music but it can be created and produced within the community you know if if so needed or so chosen and so that kind of continues with hip hop but of course with hip hop it's a little bit even more uh outside of kind of the norm culture the way it was developed um and of course you know when you listen to early hip hop a lot of it is uh you know lyrically a lot of it was very uh you know not not necessarily anti establishment again but the content was definitely of a different experience that was not necessarily uh reflected in the mainstream and of course people saw that as 
negative or violent, over sexualized, you know, the, the usual the usual uh, labels that kind of just kind of minimize or, you know, just you don't really, you know, you can from as a, at a face value, you can see why people would feel that way. But also, you know, it was a uh, there are important messages to get it to get out and important experiences to portray and talk about and discuss. And of course, there's just cultural differences sometimes that don't align just because you speak the same language doesn't mean you come from the same culture. So, so that was the portability aspect. You know, there's no CD players. Um, you know, the cassette tape, you know, is, comes up soon, and that's important for hip hop as well. But you know, you're not able to just have portable power. All of this, and the sound system enables that. You're able to, you know, pop up with music. You know, with uh, you know, we think of the mixtape era. Um, you're able to essentially cut and develop your own tracks, you know, without a studio, outside the studio, um, with some of the new technology. You can produce tapes, you know, maybe you still put, you still uh, travel with records, or, you know, as a DJ, you travel with records. So there's some portable options, but, you know, there are obviously limitations, and, have, and this, this era is really the first era where people were able to use a sound system like technology where you're you know bringing your speakers your turntables you know your mic and this and that set up basically wherever and you, know, you need a generator in some cases still depending where you're at and you know just to put together these block these uh block parties and so the key and how it all got started the block parties got started is uh, Clive Campbell's sister. Um, she came up with an idea to have a back-to-school party to raise money for school supplies and such. And Clive Campbell would be playing the the music. You know, he was, uh, you know, already DJing and whatnot. And so they did this. They rented out the uh, community. What are the at their uh, complex? They were rent the. Uh, or not the community uh, center, what, whatever they call the little community room. And they put on the first block party and that became a monthly event. And so, and that's another component, of course, as far as when you think about house parties and the ability for people to kind of have this music outside of commercial establishments. We talked about a little bit with rock and roll and some of the later R&B. And, you know, based on where you're at, obviously, you know, if you're, on the outskirts of the city or depending where you're at the city, you know, you might have a house and you can obviously host, obviously we live in the suburbs or rural area. It's easier to host larger events in your home. Um, if you live in an urban environment, you know, if you live in like a big apartment complex, obviously there's limitations. Obviously just living in an urban environment, there's probably gonna be more people trying to get to your party. You know, if you live in a smaller town, you sign on invitations and one person brings, you know, their friend or something. That's one thing, but everything just kind of gets magnified in urban areas. So obviously, you know, there's way different ways to go about it. But, you know, being outside, having portability to host your party outside or, you know, using one of these community centers, certainly if you're in a really condensed, dense neighborhood or something like that, you know, that's another reason and inf important way, um, you know, all of this was shaped um, versus if it 
it'll help happen somewhere else somewhere else so it's always interesting to kind of consider the environment and you know how that kind of shaped things and may have you know morphed and pushed the evolution in a certain direction versus another uh, and that you know of course kind of goes back to the mixtape mixtape um, the mixtapes is as far as people being able to pass and you know how they kind of just these tapes would move um, you know through the community real quick and you know you'd hear about this and this and you know people would just cut a new track or just you know make their own tape and you know it would just keep just getting passed and the tapes would evolve and really you know transform pretty quickly and it was it's, it's just an interesting but I think another point to get across is you know the tapes were not necessarily as big for the black community as they were as a as a whole the greater community because um, as we kind of discussed um, you know that era kind of had a precedent to release music within the community to the community and you know there were programs like Soul Train and whatnot and so one of the important things of for that the mixtape provided was we saw some of this music getting outside of the community and you know that didn't only give unknown music an opportunity but you kind of it really prevented the censorship of hip-hop um, you know hip-hop got a lot of pushback from the mainstream and other groups uh, you know I think rap is probably the most lyrically raw of all genres that we've at least discussed this far and so you know having the artist you know to the people putting the music out to have the, those channels clear to the people listening to the music to have those channels clear is pretty huge to prevent like the censorship some of the issues that we've talked about in the past um, as far as the radio and uh, music production labels being able to kind of limit and alter um, songs or deem something inappropriate well you know it, it changes everything when you know you you just have uh, the person people making the music having the ability to basically release it directly to the community you know obviously there's limitations to that it's not gonna you're not gonna be able to cover as much ground but you know when you once a certain amount of people gravitate to that or um, you know kind of appreciate that music and it becomes popular within a an area usually you know at some point um, you know the industry or whoever will someone will be willing to you know put that music on a map um, so yeah I keep getting into mixtapes for whatever reason I probably just gonna need to make an episode about it because I think it's just kind of getting me away from the conversation so DJ Cool Herc Clive Campbell um, he is really credited with developing the concept of the break uh, using, uh, in this case, using two turntables. Um, you would play, you play the same record, and you know you would, you would. Um, in this case, it would be, it would have been like hard funk, um, just because you know this is early, early hip hop, so that's 
basically the type of record that was going to be used in most cases. And um, yeah, so you 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 use you have the two of the same records to kind of extend a specific part of the song, you know, beat or rhythm within the song, so you can focus on that rhythm and groove for an extended period of time, which is you know really what made what makes hip hop such a key you know party dance oriented music oriented music you know it's a block party and the block party kept going for a reason and you know of course the break most more so later down the road also gave the it provided an opportunity for the dj to create you know a foundation for them to work off and add other elements you know to the beat or base of the song and or for dancers of course for the b-boys and b-girls um and so in that in 1974, he went from uh, the block parties, which you know, were really popular, and he got his first residency in um, Havalo nightclub, and you know that was uh, he did that for a while, but then in 1977, the scene kind of changed for him, and yeah, there was an incident that kind of changed uh, his trajectory or how he was going to approach it. And it impacted kind of the early hip hop followers too. When uh, he was tacked at the at the club at the executive playhouse after an argument took place, and he got like he was stabbed uh, a bunch of times, and he survived. But you know th- that changed the amount of times he performed. Um, but you know he he uh, yeah, kind of from that point on, he performed less and less. Um, but he kept going, and you know, really the key is with Clive Campbell is some of the early DJ innovative, innovative work that he did, and of course, just really bringing you know the sound system and you know what was the block party became the block party um, to the Bronx and to New York, and that really kind of sparked you know all of hip hop as far as that sort of base foundation, and it kind of just builds up from there as far as people adding lyrics and whatnot, people rapping over tracks, this and that. You know, there were some uh, examples of this. We talked about a couple times with, of course, we talked about spoken word. We talked about a couple black DJs um, back in the day who kind of, you know, it did things that kind of resembled that as well. But of course, at this point, you know, when you have a DJ and you have someone in command of the of the record um you know that changes everything that changes the whole landscape as we talked about with the break the break really changes the whole landscape as far as you know for the performance the dance as well as for you know lyrically kind of opens up that window for um as we'll talk about in a in a later episode it just opens up that ability to really uh edit and make the track your own and with some of the technology that comes out uh you know very soon as this genre really explodes and that really kind of finalizes everything it really gives that power to the dj or the artist to edit and cut or make their own beats and make their own tracks and whatnot extend do all of that and so it's as we've talked about with previous genres you know it's as much as the artist and the ability for the artist to innovate as it is the technology that was being released and created at the time and so we have one more artist 
but before we talk about them, we will talk about uh, the terminology on the timeline. And we won't get too deep into it because we've already talked about it when we talked about Jack the Rapper, Joseph Dayton Gibson, and his uh, family family affair um, convention that would happen or used to happen annually. Um, you know, Jack the Rapper, known as Joseph Dayton Gibson, as I just said, he started the convention in 1977 and was originally for black radio and people involved in the industry to come together and collaborate, exchange knowledge and experiences. It was really the, it was really the first, um, it was, you know, definitely the first of its kind, you know, as we've kind of talked about with Jack the Rapper, he was, you know, very innovative and progressive on the business side after he kind of finished his DJ and direction, radio directive, direction career. Um, he, you know, continued to stay within the business and the culture and kind of be a, you know, important political and social commentator, commentator, commentator. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyways, this first um, event was during the first Black Music Month in Atlanta. And the idea was for it to really grow um, and, you know, continue to allow the knowledge base and, you know, to have additional seminars and workshops and guest speakers. And it did that to some extent, but also, as, you know, many of you might might already know, you know, over time it grew and grew and became a little bit, you know, less for the conferences and workshops, um, and more for the opportunity to be heard by top industry professor professionals and just the celebrative um, celebration that it turned out to be, um, which was really cool in its own right. You know, it's not a knock on the convention. Um, you know, it was definitely a huge phenomenon for the time it was around. And so it really just grew beyond the radio professionals and, you know, you really saw musicians and eventually celebrities and basically everybody wanted to be involved in the industry, but also just the scene uh, during that uh, that week, <coughs> weekend, I guess. Um, and so it became, you know, basically the, one of the largest gatherings of its type. And, you know, really paired well with uh, the growing hip-hop genre. And the, con- the convention, as I kind of alluded to, it became known for... Uh, performances and just the personalities present at the convention and you know the original thinking was billboard magazine used to have an annual conference uh, as well and number one you know there weren't black professionals who were involved in that really and so Jack the Bapper wanted to prioritize that but he wanted the conference to focus more on the educational aspect and of course, black professionals, and he accomplished that, and, and of course, a lot more. Um, you know, definitely served that purpose and a lot more. And Jack the Rapper was very supportive of the growing hip hop industry, and so that really, you know, his support really ops also kind of helped that kind of kind of organically grow, and you know, really offer, offered a one uh, one of a kind opportunity for you know, these newer labels that were coming up and artists to network and also collaborate with some of the people who've been in the industry for a long time, and some of the legends, you know, who may have come up in other genres, but, you know, it's all part of the 
the same lineage as as we've been talking about. But the other con the other component and thing that was occurring with the growth was the the uh, venues, the you know people hosting the events, um, people around the event were becoming more concerned, and you know in some cases rightfully so it was getting a little bit there's some raucous that kind of kind of uh, occurred, and you know so some of it was warranted, but some of it you know I think you know it was a cultural phenomenon, it was a black cultural phenomenon, so I think sometimes people were just feeling a little bit wary of just the type of people that were coming to it. So some of it was warranted, some of it was a little bit, a little, there's some, certainly some racism in there as well. Um, and of course hip hop, you know, there's a, you know, people associated with hip hop are sometimes so associated with other types of businesses, business that has uh, occurred in their past or maybe still occurring. So, you know, it's a, uh, it, some of it was warranted, some of it wasn't really. But um, it was initially hosted in Atlanta, and because of the growth and everything, um, they had to shift to larger um, alternative venues, and it eventually moved to Orlando, and that's that was the final um, location. Um, the last uh, convention was 1994, you know, some fights broke out, and the party just, you know, the, the aftermath of the party was just, it was just too much, it got too much, uh, you know, it was just kind of a mess after it was all over besides the fights and everything, it was just a lot going on, and uh, so that was kind of, that was kind of it, and we kind of w went to some of the other details about uh, some of the things that um, kind of went around that, that had to do a little bit more with Jack the Rapper. But that's, you know, in a nutshell, that is the family affair, Jack the Rapper's family affair. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to find out more, I would recommend going back to uh, that, that clip or that episode with Jack the Rapper. I don't know what episode it was off the top of my head, but certainly if you go to the timeline at bloomlineage.com, you can at least look at the clip and it should go into it um, to some degree um, and I think that there's actually there may be a clip about the family affair but I don't remember we'll have to see um, so the last artist on the timeline or artists actually I should say are the sequence and I briefly mentioned the sequence when talking about Sylvia Robinson and Sugar Hill Records, and the sequence was known as one of the first all-female hip-hop groups to sign with the label, and you know perhaps like one of the first commercial hip-hop groups ever. If you consider that, you know the Sugar Hill Gang was formed by you know Sylvia Robinson and Sugar Hill Rock Records. They kind of scouted out these individuals, whereas the sequence, you know, they already existed, you know, as a as a group. So you could say that they've been to they uh, may have been one of the first commercial hip-hop groups in general, just by how long they've been together, but not the first signed. Um, so the group was composed of Ang Angie Stone, at the time known as uh, Angie Brown, and she was a uh, R&B singer, um, 
you might you may have be familiar with her already, uh, but at the time of the sequence, she was known as MC Angie Brown, and the other group members were Cheryl the Pearl Cook and Gwendolyn MC Blondie Tissom. Um, and so, as I was saying, they had been they had met in high school. They formed a group in high school um, in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. And the story that, as the story goes, they uh, met with Sylvia Robinson backstage. So they kind of found a way to get backstage. And they were able to, uh, it was during a Sugar Hill gang show. And they were able to perform for them, for uh, Sylvia Robinson and them and uh, she uh, was impressed and they were signed and the first single was Funk You Up which was released in 1979 and of course uh, this would have been the third rap single to make it to the top 50 and all of this was of course uh, you know all in the same year 1979 was a big year for Sugar Records and hip hop commercially at least um, so, th yeah, this was the third rap single to make it to the top 50 of the Billboard Hot, Hot Soul singles, which is what you know, that that was called at the time. We can go back to our episode about the history of the Billboard charts to learn a bit, little bit more about that and the naming process. And this was the second release from Sugar Hill Records and the first by an all-female rap group commercially. Always have to add that piece in. And... They were a very interesting and uh, innovative group, I think, um, just because they combine, combined the R&B roots. You know, they were originally really an R&B group with uh, funk and rap. And, you know, really, in, a, in many ways, foreshadowed foreshadow the aspects of the genre. You know, going to the future, as we saw, you know, rap or hip-hop um, develop. We saw, like, you know, a little bit more of the... Uh, the combinations that we saw as far as combining some of these vo vocal aspects with, you know, some rapping and some other, you know, if you think of some later groups that kind of really put it all together, um, you know, we saw that more down the line. But being the first, uh, really one of the first um, groups uh, to already be doing that and already to have that in their, their albums, you know, was pretty interesting and innovative. Um, and so, yeah, their albums, their first album and their second album, they had a moderate success, but it was limited. And, you know, they, they definitely had a good notoriety. Um, but the financial piece was always an issue, um, you know, compared to, you know, their, their uh, pioneers and innovators within the genre. Obviously, Sugar Hill Records being, you know, one of the first to produce these commercial rap groups they were obviously seeing some good financial success but we talked about one aspect where there's some lawsuits later on d later down the line that they were dealing with uh, Sugar Records um, but at the same time the record company itself they uh, owned the sequences uh, publishing rights for 30 years so the, se the sequence the members of the sequence they didn't get gain their uh, rights to their music until you know 2016 basically so you know that's a <laughs> that's very recent so um 
you know, it's unfortunate. Uh, that aspect is unfortunate because, you know, we are now seeing, um, you know, some of these black performers really coming through their career, maybe, you know, early in their career having to deal with the industry and not being paid fairly. And now, you know, they're starting their own companies and really having the opportunity to try to write some of that. And I know to some degree, a lot of things were righted. Um, Jack the Rapper, as I talked about, is a good uh, example of someone who kind of was critical of this pattern that had, was occurring. Um, so it's unfortunate that, you know, artists like the sequence were, even though, you know, they were, their boss was someone who went through the industry themselves and kind of saw the good and the bad, is now kind of um, continuing to do that to them. And, you know, have, being a group in 1979 and not getting your publishing rights till 2016, it's a quite, a, it's quite a, a span of time right there where you could probably have used that fi those finances. Um, but, you know, that's for the sequence, you know, a very pioneering genre. I mean, sorry. Pioneers in the genre, very important. Um, you know, I think one reason they're highlighted is because of their unique style, kind of innovating not only as a premier, you know, first group um, in commercial hip hop, but also just their style. When you listen to their style, it, it's uh, very, um, you know, it sounds more modern, I would say, to some degree, as far as the way they kind of blend R&B and hip hop. Um, and, you know, I think another aspect for a lot of this is just, you know, when you think about Sylvia Robinson and the sequence and, uh, you know, a ton of these early groups, um, We'll talk about another group, um, but just f uh, females in hip hop. I think a lot of times people, you know, the hardcore hip hop fans know about it, but and there of course is a lack of females throughout you know the industry. Certainly, even more so on the production side. But you know, I think sometimes people think of uh, you know the more recent uh, women rappers or hip-hop artists as kind of a change in the genre, but you also, I think, have to recognize, and, and a lot of people do recognize um, some of these early artists, female artists, who really got the genre going. You know, this is the very beginning of uh, hip-hop, like the, the very beginning of commercial hip-hop. So, you know, to be there right in the beginning and to, you know, kind of set that precedent, you know, I think it's very important to recognize a, a group like a sequence and kind of also just see that lineage with, you know, how Sylvia Robinson kind of did what she did as far as bringing that into the spotlight to have her career and then, you know, essentially become the CEO of uh, the first, you know, major uh, commercial hip-hop label. So that's the sequence. Um, we'll have those tracks up on the site. And, you know, very good to check out. A great group in their own right. Not necessarily super well-known, but, of course, I think Angie Stone may be maybe known f more for her R&B career sometimes than her her time the with the sequence, but I don't know. You know, it's, I think it just depends, you know, what you kind of came up, what you grew up with, or what genre you're, in, you're into, and what, you, what, what history you know of. I know a lot of people, you know, will be in, like, to old school and not necessarily hip-hop. I know, like, even though they're so related, you know, it's a, a lot of times it's a different crowd, so it kind of depends on, you know, what you listen to. But anyways, that's this episode. You know, basically at this point, we have uh, one more episode, 
and we're just going to be uh, basically wrapping up this uh, hip-hop genre with a couple more important artists. We're kind of just developing, you know, we just got into the, the beginnings of it, and now it's definitely formal, formally hip-hop. You know, we saw Clive Campbell, and, you know, that community kind of put, formalized it all and laid the groundwork for DJs to really, you know, take off and run with it and innovate more as far as, uh, you know, with the break and how you want to shape, you know, tracks and utilize records and turntables. And, of course, we talked about cassette tapes and how that, you know, you're able to record to, to a cassette tape and essentially make your own uh, music in this way. And then we'll talk about another invention that's very important in this process and some artists that were really kind of starting to innovate and take, you know, the actual lyrical style and um, the music into what we, what resembles more of the hip hop and rap today. And from there, you know, you know, we'll talk about next episode, but by no means being the last episode, does that mean that there's, that's the end of musical in innovation, plenty of innovation that's happening, you know, now and since the end of the timeline. Uh, we'll talk about why it ends. It ended, or ends when it does. Next episode. But thanks for listening. Um, thanks for sticking around with uh, with the blue lineage. Um, hopefully, it's kind of taken shape. Uh, I think this episode was a little bit choppy, especially with the Clive Campbell trying to talk about mixtapes. <laughs> but um, you know, like I said, I'll probably have to do a separate episode just on that and try to clarify some of those things because it was kind of all over the place there but um you know we're into hip-hop we're almost there um thanks for listening again and take care